Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on rape, violence, and stalking, so listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode eight, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1997 animated psychological horror film Perfect Blue. It was written by Sadayuki Murai and directed by Satoshi Kon. It's based on the novel Perfect Blue, Complete Metamorphosis by Yoshikazu Takeuchi. The film stars the voices of Junko Iwao, Rika Matsumoto, Shiho Niyama, and Masaki Okura. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Still here? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. I actually had a hard time finding a lot of like behind the scenes stuff about this film because unfortunately, Satoshi Khan died of pancreatic cancer in 2010 at a very young age. Oh, no. Yeah. So a lot of people who were deeply involved in the film, like only had like sort of their versions of it. And Satoshi yeah. Khan, who was heavily involved, obviously, uh, he really wasn't around long enough to give like a full in-depth like analysis of his own film. Originally, the film was supposed to be a live action film uh, that went like direct to video. But after the Kobe earthquake of 1995 damaged the production studio, the budget for the film was reduced to animation. And up and coming director Satoshi Khan and screenwriter Sadayuki Murai did not think that the original novel would make a good film and asked if they could change the contents. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, so this change was approved so long as they kept a few of the original concepts from the novel. And apparently a live action film was eventually made in 2002, but in my opinion, it's very boring compared to the animated film. Oh, yeah, interesting. I, yeah, I watched a little bit of it online and I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not for uh, no. me. So, Perfect Blue premiered on August 5th, 1997 at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, Canada, and had its general release in Japan on February 28th, 1998. The film was well-received critically in the festival circuit, winning awards at the Fantasia Festival in Montreal and the Fantes Porto Film Festival in Portugal. Critical response in the United States upon its theatrical release was also very positive, although the film didn't necessarily perform well. It made like a little under half a million at the U.S. box office. Time magazine included the film on its top five anime film list, and former Monty Python member and director Terry Gilliam, of whom Khan was a fan, included it in his list of the top 50 animated films. Total Film ranked Perfect Blue 25th on their list of greatest animated films, and Dash Film named it the scariest animated film ever. Oh my god. Yeah, it also made the list for 
Entertainment Weekly's Best Movies Never Seen from 1991 to 2011. Oh my god, that's wild. The film had a theatrical re-release in the United States by G-Kids on September 6th and 10th, 2018, with both English dubbed and subtitled screenings. G-Kids and Shout Factory released the film on Blu-ray for the first time in North America on March 26, 2019. Madonna incorporated clips from the film into a remix into a remix of her song What It Feels Like for a Girl as a video interlude during her Drowned World Tour in 2001. And American filmmaker Darren Aronofsky acknowledged the obvious similarities of Perfect Blue in his 2010 film Black Swan. Yes. It's clear that Aronofsky is a huge fan because in his previous film, Requiem for a Dream, there's a shot-for-shot remake of a scene from Perfect Blue that he openly bought the rights for. And it's the scene where Mima is in her tub and she, like, screams in her tub. Oh my god, yes, okay. According to the article, Perfect Blue and Our Complicated Relationship with Celebritism, quote, Perfect Blue is an anime that I suggest every cinephile that's ever said or thought the phrase, I'm just not into anime, watch. It's a beaming example of how animation can stand toe-to-toe with live-action film and even heighten a story's tension in ways that live-action just can't. And according to Michael Oliver Harding, quote, Perfect Blue is the rebellious cult gem that set the benchmark for a whole new era of anime. 20 years on, one can appreciate just how prophetic this blurred reality brain bender was in anticipating the dangers of the internet, unquote. Mm, yes. Yeah. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Mima, a Japanese pop star in the trio Cham, decides to try out acting as her next career move. Her fans are disappointed to say the least, and as Mima's career begins to grow as an actress, she discovers that someone is stalking her and writing an online diary about her life called Mima's Room. She also gets scary fax machine messages with the word traitor printed on them. To the dismay of her fans and mentor, Rumi, Mima accepts a role that includes a rape scene, and she also does a pinup photo shoot with a scandalous photographer. These events affect her so deeply that she's unable to determine reality from fiction. Soon, the men that were responsible for her new career, supposedly tarnishing her squeaky-clean pop star character, are murdered. She soon learns of a stalker known only by his online persona, Mimania. It turns out that he is the creator of Mima's room, and one night he attempts to sexually assault Mima and kill her, but she kills him and escapes, shaken and scarred by the experience. Rumi finds Mima in a daze after the terrifying encounter and drives Mima back to her apartment. While at Mima's apartment, she discovers Rumi dressed in her old sham costume. Mima soon realizes that she is not in her apartment at all. She's in Rumi's apartment, and it's decorated just like her own. It turns out that Rumi is the one murdering all of the executives in her circle, as well as the controller of the stalker, Mimania, whom she corresponded with in creating Mima's room. Rumi, dressed as the old Mima, chases Mima through the city, attempting to murder her, believing that Mima is an imposter, bent on ruining the real Mima's career. Mima realizes that Rumi is experiencing episodes of dissociation, and she tries to get her to wake up from her delusion. Rumi is almost hit by a truck in the scuffle, but Mima saves her. 
Time passes, and Rumi is stuck in a perpetual state of delusion in a mental institute while Mima continues her acting career and tries to move forward. Awesome. Thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. You're welcome. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechtel test. It passes a lot, actually. Yes. The majority of the conversations in this between the women are about their careers and their friendships, and it's pretty freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do they talk about men in this, and I love it because... Uh, honestly, I think one of those, the, one of the reasons is because none of them have husbands or boyfriends. Yes. They're too busy and they work with a lot of men, but they never, they hardly ever talk about them. Right, right. Okay. So Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, it actually just misses that mark. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Yes, actually. Hitomi Nakagaki was a producer on this film. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? Yes. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in this film? No, there weren't. So this film is obviously made in in Japan. It actually has some themes and, and some careers even in it that might not be so recognizable to Western people. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the background on what like the idol industry even is. And I think people in the West are more aware of it now with like K-pop or Korean pop bands gaining notoriety in the States. Like BTS is huge and Girls' Generation is as well. But in case you're unaware, in Japan, an idol is, quote, a young starlet manufactured and marketed for image, attractiveness, and personality in Japanese culture. An idol's main objective is to entertain and offer an escapism from daily life, unquote. And that's just from the Wikipedia page for Japanese idols. So some popular female-led Japanese idol groups are AKB48, Baby Metal, who I really love, and Morning Musume. And according to Catherine Liu in her article, The Path to Womanhood, Female Coming-of-Age Narratives Through the Animated Lens, she says, quote, In Japanese culture, pop idols are not considered to be serious performers. Rather than being seen as real actors or musicians, they are viewed more as charming public figures who represent the ideals of innocence and sweetness, unquote. Hmm. Yeah, so now that we understand the idol industry, this film automatically becomes way more coherent to a western viewer like the idea of perfect blue portraying the sort of horror behind the scenes of the idol industry is maybe something we're not used to however we do in fact understand the concept of young women being abused by an entertainment industry which is why this film is so timeless and can go across borders and kayla hearn says quote Mima's naivete about what the internet even is briefly inspires a nostalgic chuckle. Before the messages screaming traitor hit her, we realize the tools have changed, but the entitlement and misogyny have not, unquote. Yep. Yeah, and so that brings us to fan entitlement, corporate abuse, like hashtag me too, and fish, <laughs> which I'll explain the fish in a minute. But uh, yeah, let's t- let's talk about this article, Perfect Blue and Our Complicated Relationship with Celebritism. The author notes, quote, 
What struck me most was the all-too-real social responses to Mima's decisions, as well as having to watch her struggle in dealing with the pressures of the spotlight alone. It's the same reason that movie producer Harvey Weinstein and countless others like him have been able to abuse their power and sexually harass women for so long, unquote. And, you know, we see this when Mima fakes a smile and her agent tells her, like, to do it because he doesn't want her to look ungrateful. And that same agent pressures her into doing an unpleasant rape scene in the drama series because she doesn't want to disappoint the men who worked hard to give her a bigger role. And Mima is also pressured into taking her clothes off in the middle of a sexy photo shoot. And then one of the members of CHAM even mentions how this particular photographer is known to get girls to undress, uh, even if the photo shoot like doesn't call for it. And this sounds a lot like the allegations against Terry Richardson. Ugh. Yeah, and the more recent Marcus Hyde scandal. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up these photographers too, because there's a really great part of an article on a blog called Insights in Art, and it says, quote, Another one of the central themes of Perfect Blue is the objectification of a woman's body for profit, something which Khan strongly voices against. Khan portrays this relationship between Mima and the media companies who greedily consume and distribute her image as rape, the exploitation of the human body for financial benefits. The cameras, which are always held by male photographers, are phallic instruments, which pierce and unveil, ignorant to the consequences of their lust. This voyeurism peaks when Mima accepts a role where she pretends to be raped within a nightclub. We see her body through the lens of a camera and not her point of view. She is an object to be acted upon. The power dynamic of sex is also reflected in Mimania's final confrontation with Mima, where he confesses that he attempts to destroy this new reincarnation of Mima through raping her and eventually killing her. Yeah. Symbolically, he attempts to commit this crime while on the same film set previously mentioned where Mima was raped whilst acting further blurring the lines between the two worlds. For a character who only has a few lines of dialogue throughout this film, Mimania's shadow taints every interaction, every scene and location, and he is truly terrifying in an illogical manner which cannot be reasoned with, unquote. So, yeah, that the whole concept of like being a photographer and taking advantage in that way and it, that part really struck me because it is relevant and even the film being as old as it is like it's so wild to me that it's still happening right and I think it's interesting because she does this regular like pinup photo shoot mm-hmm. and it's like after a while you see the photographer being like okay now take this off now take that off like I don't think that's what she signed up for when she did it. I think it just sort of was happening. Right. So it was already a sexy photo shoot, which is fine, like, if that's what she wants to do. But the fact that it's going farther than what she signed up for, that's the problem. Yes, exactly. And it's scary. You know, I also want to add that I think it's also very telling that the scene that she does for the series is a rape scene in particular. It's not a sex scene between her and a partner. It's rape. It's gang rape, even. 
And Mima feels pressured by the men who run her career to do this scene. Like, yes, she agrees, but only because she doesn't want to go back to being like a baby, basically, which is what Rumi sort of wants. And Rumi's option isn't an option for Mima. So what else does she have? And metaphorically, she is being raped by the men in her industry, as well as her male Cham fans. Like, when you watch that opening scene when she's performing with Cham, there's, like, no women in that audience. It's all men. And I think it's kind of funny that she's wearing a sexier version of her Cham costume in the rape scene. Yeah, I noticed that. Like, holy crap, it's almost exactly the same thing. It's just, like, a little bit more revealing. It's wild. And while Rumi could be interpreted, like, she could be interpreted as a woman who victim blames other women. And like, yeah, she's the killer of all these men, but she also tries to kill Mima. And if we want to look at Rumi's role a little differently, like, there's this quote by Susan Napier in her amazing essay, Performance, The Gaze, and the Female in the Works of Khan Satoshi. She says, quote, In a sense, Rumi's violent actions can be rationalized by her attempt to protect Mima, or rather the Mima that she idolizes and whom she identifies, from the destructive gaze of the male. Rumi thus could be seen as enacting a female revenge fantasy, destroying the male gaze forever. The only problem with this interpretation is that Rumi is presented as clearly insane. Yeah, that is very true. I think this is also really telling of the industry in general because, I mean, you can look at young women like Miley Cyrus, who, yeah, yeah, she started off as like a pop star on the Disney Channel and then they mature into women who are sexual beings. And while this is obviously a little bit different because here, like we're talking about a rape scene, a lot of the gossip that surrounded her career kind of reminds me of the toxicity that Rumi and um, Mimania represent and men and women with this internalized misogyny also like they often look at these young women who grow into humans that want to experience sexuality as like whores or cheap sellouts you know it's been a huge part of pop culture for so long and this film is a perfect breakdown of moments like that and I love that it talked about mental health as well Like, despite having negative connotations, because it kind of looks at it from every angle. Out of all of the angles that it looks at, uh, Mima's is, I think, the one that's very telling. Yeah, so going back to Mima after she films the rape scene, she, of course, breaks, right? So talking about her mental illness, Mm -hmm. she breaks when she imagines that her fish are dead. And this is where the whole fish thing comes in. The poster, like a couple posters for this film have the fish in the poster. And um, I was like, this is really interesting. These fish really, truly mean something, I think. And I kind of looked up like what fish mean and like like what they sort of represent. I couldn't really find anything for Japanese culture. Um, I could find a lot of stuff for koi fish, but not... And that's not fish in particular. But in general, so Mina, Mima begins to cry and she throws herself onto her bed after she imagines that her fish are dead. And she screams, of course, I didn't want to do it. And she's talking about the rape scene. And in general, fish symbolize many things. But one thing that stood out to me was that fish can represent the deeper awareness of the unconsciousness or higher self. So with her fish being dead, Mima has lost track of her higher self. 
she is the lowest of the low right now and accepting roles not because she wants to, but because she doesn't want to quote unquote make a scene. Now we could also argue that she dreamed that her fish were dead, okay? So when someone dreams of dead fish, it is a reflection of your disappointment and dismay. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that sounds a lot like how she feels towards herself, but also the entertainment industry at that point. Yeah. And the fish are also red and blue, which we're going to talk about later. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty important coloring right there. Um, But first, let's talk about creating and experiencing confusion in perfect blue. This film is so good at it. This film is so good at mentally effing up your mind. Yeah, um, it's so true. Um, the film like starts out with Power Ranger type action heroes. So we as the viewer think that we might be watching a stereotypical anime about like colorful super people. But really, it's just a stage production. It's not real. And the film is nothing like the anime that the viewer might be used to. And side note, the Power Ranger characters wear the same colors that Cham wear. So there's another scene, it's a close-up, and it happens right after someone is murdered, where we see a red siren blinking. And we think it might be like an ambulance on their way to take care of the person who was murdered. But you back up and it's only a little kid on a toy car. There are also some scenes in which Mima is saying lines that seem to be dealing with her reality, but actually she's just reciting lines for the new show that she's on, and it's called Double Bind. Uh, We're going to talk about that too in a second. And there's also a few scenes that are back to back of Mima waking up, and she's waking up from what we, the audience, thinks is a series of nightmares. However, Rumi acts like these nightmares were all real, like they've actually been happening to her, or at least some of them have. And like all of these little tricks keep us, as the viewer, thrown off completely. Yes. It's true. (laughs) We're put into Mima's shoes by the end of the movie because we are just as confused about what is real and what is fiction as she is. To add to that, who's to say that Mima hadn't already been in Rumi's apartment during those nightmares? And that's something that I think about a lot because Rumi's apartment looks just like Mima's because she's obsessed with her. And Mima will like fall asleep and then she'll wake up and she like Rumi will be there. And it's like, is she in a Rumi's apartment or did Rumi just show up to her apartment? Like, I don't know. Oh, that's so weird. It's so weird. It's creepy. And it's, this movie's amazing. Like, there's no way to know that you can't tell. There's also multiple Mimas in this. The first one we meet is pop idol Mima in Cham. And then we meet Mima herself, who is exceptionally normal. Uh, We meet Mimania who is Mima's stalker, who pretends to be her online. And we uh, meet Mima's character in Double Bind. And then there's Rumi, who believes that she is the quote-unquote real Mima. So that only causes confusion within the film itself, too, like with its characters. Like, the film is explored through Mima's eyes, but it's also explored through the eyes of those who watch Mima, like how she's viewed by others. So we as the audience kind of understand like who all these different characters are, but within the film, everyone is confusing everybody else. And it's all Mima. It's all some sort of identity that is Mima. And it's really crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. So also the webpage Mima's Room begins to take her identity as well, 
when the Mima's Room blog states that she went shopping somewhere, Mima says, quote, oh, I guess I went shopping there. And then the audience and Mima assume she either just doesn't remember or she didn't actually do it. And we are all just accepting this online diary as an unexplainable fact. What's interesting about that scene where she goes shopping is that she buys the clothes that she uses to kill the photographer. And we, the audience, are shown that the killer of the photographer is Mima. And in the background, there are like all these like blue and green and red colors, which are all the colors of Cham. And Mima kills the photographer in front of the screen where Mima's acting reel is being shown to him. So it's as if all of the Mimas, or at least some of the Mimas, are in the scene. And we know by the end that the killer is Rumi, but do we? The actual Mima could have easily been the killer of the photographer because she has the clothes that she like used to kill him. Oh my gosh. But the only argument against that is that the murder weapon that Rumi uses at the end is the same as the one that kills the photographer. And because Rumi's room also looks like Mima's room, she could have easily been in Rumi's room when she found the clothes that were used to kill the photographer. But we as the audience and her as a character thinks it's all in her room. Oh my god. So it's like it's so this movie is so good. Like it it really screws you up and it's totally meant to do that. Well, I love too that we get like everyone's perspective in the movie. Like obviously it's a film about Mima and like her experiences and that kind of thing, but I think it's important in showing like the depth in which a career like this affects, you know, not only the celebrity but those who obsess over someone that they like don't even know in in particular like super fans and stuff like that like it's part of what makes it so ultimately frightening and this came out before social media was even a thing so like I can I can only imagine what this film would have said about the time that we live in currently but for coming out at like the dawn of the internet it still speaks volumes about human obsession because of all of the angles that we get. And then, like, couple that with untreated mental illness and it becomes, like, an actual nightmare. It's so scary. Okay, so let's talk about Double Bind and its hidden meaning in Perfect Blue. Just a reminder, Double Bind is the TV series or, like, miniseries that Mima is working on in the film. Okay, so in some scenes, Mima sees quote-unquote old Mima in mirrors and in the TV and computer screens, and she's like hopping around hallways past patrons who don't see her like Mima does. Yet, at the end of the film, it's revealed that Rumi is the old Mima. But how could this be? Rumi is flesh and blood. She wouldn't have been able to pull off all of those ghost-like visions that Mima was having of old Mima. And this is where Double Bind comes into play. Not just the TV show, but the name as a metaphor. Uh, so it's like scenes in the film we, met, we the audience are watching reflect the scenes that are being filmed for Double Bind. Like how Mima's reciting lines that have to do with the plot of the movie, but they also have to do with the plot of Double Bind. Mm -hmm. And like it's a play within a play, if you will. And Mima's first line in the show is, who are you? which reflects her question of who her online impersonator is. And not only that, but it's almost a question for herself. Anyway, her character in Double Bind is suffering from a mental illness of some sort. And Mima, in reality, wonders if she is suffering some sort of mental break. 
the lead actress in Double Bind, Eerie, responds to her fellow actor's line, but illusions don't kill. And she says in character, what if the illusion found someone to possess? Ooh. Yeah, so let's take this line and think of the use of the title Double Bind. Both Mima and Rumi are possessed by this idea of the old Mima. They are both haunted by it in some way. And Mima is haunted by the colorful Sojo specter. And Shoujo means a young Japanese girl. So while Rumi has taken on the persona of the specter, so when they meet, Mima is faced with the ghost she saw in her mind and Rumi, who is an ex-idol herself, projects her own dead career onto Mima's. She feels like she can relive her pop idol years through Mima's career, so when Mima leaves, she breaks. So both women are bound by the same illusion. Ooh, it's like that whole thing about duality, too. Like, the person you are in public and then the person you are privately. And for Mima... It's a catch-22 because she loved her career with Cham, but she also, you know, she knows that she has to keep growing and, like, keep progressing. And she hides her feelings from the executives she works with because she wants to get cast in bigger roles, even if that means sacrificing her mental health. But, I mean, besides that, deep down, she's just a woman who is trying to find balance between her fame and her humanity. And it's really frightening when those lines begin to blur because she has no idea who she is anymore. Like, she's lost in the idea of her fame, but she still works hard for it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the color red in Perfect Blue, and then, of course, the title Perfect Blue. Mm -hmm. So the opening scenes are connected through two boys running through Cham's audience members. One is wearing a red jacket, while the other is wearing a light blue shirt. The red is very apparent. In fact, throughout the film, you noticed how red is more vibrant than any other color shown. Mm-hmm. Which is funny for a film called Perfect Blue. Right. And even at the end, when we think all is well, like, red is very prominent. And we'll talk about that in a second. Mima's kitchen and bedroom, for the most part, contain the color red. Since red can be interpreted as madness, or the blurred line between reality and fiction in this film, it's interesting that her home, where she rests and where she eats, is filled with that color. Even in her safe place, she's surrounded by madness. Mm -hmm. In the scenes where Mima first arrives in her room, she is wearing a blue and white striped shirt. So her shirt is not a perfect blue because white is incorporated. Much like how the sky at the end of the film isn't a perfect blue either. There are white clouds covering it. And Rumi and the old Mima represent the madness with the use of the color red in, like, Mima's or the old Mima's, like, outfit. Mm -hmm. And Mima is, like, blue. Like, she is trying to obtain, like, this perfect blueness because everything else surrounding her old life is red. And she never quite gets there, though, because even by the end, she jumps into a red car and the blue sky above her has some cloud coverage. So for me, it's almost like that perfect blue, just that perfection in general, is futile. It's sort of in the eye of the beholder, but like you you never really can truly reach perfection. Like Mima feels that she has reached it when she says, I'm the real me, but 
we know that everyone grows and changes throughout their life. I thought it was interesting, too, because like the use of red is also seen as a harbinger of death or new life. Like it's a it's a very warm, passionate color, and it also represents chaos. So it's got a dual meaning here. And because red is often associated with desire, power, primal nature, as Mima takes on more sexual roles, it only makes sense that the color appears a lot. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum is like the cool and calming blue, and it's like a little bit more neutral and associated with sadness depth and stability so i kind of love the use of color in this film you know what's really interesting is that in cham her color is red yeah there's another girl in the group whose color is blue which i thought that's really interesting that she isn't the color blue in cham I just thought, wow, it would have been interesting if she was blue from the start and then, like, she started becoming more and more red. But the Chea Mima isn't perfect. So for her to be blue then wouldn't make sense because the whole idea is for her to not go back to that. So she's attempting to be a color that she never was. Yeah. And I think that that's an important statement. Like, red and blue are not on the opposite spectrum, right? In the color wheel. I don't think they are. But like red and blue, everyone thinks like red and blue are opposites in like society. Like yeah, yeah. we look at red and blue, um, like team red and team blue, you know, are always like the big teams, right? We don't have like team blue and team green. Like it's always like team red, team blue. And I'm pretty sure in Japanese culture, there is a folk tale of two onis, which are like kind of like ogres, kind of like demon things. And one is red and one is blue. And they are like twins, I think. And they like are different. Like one is very like gentle and sweet. And I think the other one's very chaotic. Technically, red and blue are not connected really in any way with color theory, but they in society like they are connected like we associate two very different feelings i think that that's kind of interesting that the fish are both colors yes like you kind of have to hold on to both feelings you know like i'm thinking of the movie um inside out where it's like you have to have happiness and sadness you know like you can't just one feeling cannot like overpower another feeling i guess and right yeah and i think that that's why the fish are so important and are used in a lot of the well the advertisement and are a big part of the film because there's this balance between red and blue that mima has a hard time obtaining instead she wants to be one particular color i guess and realizing that that's not possible but let's get into our final thought. What does that finale mean? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Listen, so Mima and Rumi fight and Rumi is about to get run over by a truck that appears to her to be stage lights, which I loved that. That was almost like a complete copy of the opening when Mima is on stage for Cham. And then the title comes up like it, it's the exact same thing. So Rumi sees the lights of the car. It looks like stage lights. So she like opens up her arms and like welcomes it. And Mima, the real Mima, who I believe still sees Rumi as the old Mima, runs out in front of the truck and saves her. Really, in the end, Mima chooses not to destroy her old self. And when she goes to visit Rumi in the mental institution, she tells the doctor, quote, she's the reason I am who I am today, unquote. And she could mean Rumi, 
but I think she means the old Mima. By killing the old Mima, she would in turn deny her past. Instead, she accepts her past and continues to move forward. And what I love about this ending, too, is that Rumi, Susan Napier actually mentioned this, and I thought it was great. Uh, We could look at her as, like, the classic gothic evil mother figure who, like, is, like, super controlling, just like in movies like Rebecca. She's gone. And all of the unattractive, manipulative men controlling Mima's career are also gone. And Mima leaves the mental institution unattended. And two nurses sort of whisper, oh, is that the real Mima? And she walks by them when they say this. And for the first time, we see Mima independently driving herself somewhere. She's not on a train. She's not in the back of her agent's car, nor is she sitting in the passenger seat of Rumi's car. She is driving herself and she can go wherever the heck she wants. And maybe the sky is not a perfect blue, but she's at least in control now. And she says in the car mirror... It's the real me. And for the first time in a while, it's not the old Mima looking back in the mirror. It's really her. I thought it was perfect. But I mean, in a way, I feel like this film is about like growing up and learning how to trust yourself. And the entire time, Mima is surrounded by people who want to use her or they want her to, you know, fit into a mold or idea of her that they have created. And, you know, it says a lot about trusting your instincts and realizing that not everyone has your best interests in mind, but knowing that you can come out okay on the other side. And Mima has this incredible will to keep going. And, like, she defends herself multiple times. And she also comes to the realization that she was surrounded by unhealthy people who made her sick. And she, you know, she's still strong enough to keep going. She kind of goes from being a victim to becoming a survivor and then eventually thriving because she knows who she is after all of that. Listen, this uh, apparently, you know, Entertainment Weekly was like, it was the top, one of the top films that people don't have never seen, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I really wanted to do this one for our show because I don't know a lot of horror fans who have seen this or maybe who haven't seen it but or who don't maybe appreciate it because it is animated. Films like this are important because, you know, Satoshi Khan did take people and characters and their stories seriously. And just because he didn't do live action doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the human condition. Right. Yeah, I really hope that you all really enjoyed this episode and I hope you all really enjoyed Perfect Blue because it's a good film. It's an excellent film. Highly recommend. <laughs> ten ten would recommend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. So head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers and TV shows and new movies over there sometimes, so become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.